0: Blog Talk Radio Enter the Zone The Prophecy Zone Your end-time watchman Bringing you light in a dark world Where truth is rivaled with a lie And the Matrix is normal life Luke 21. And there shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity So be ready to enter the light or truth about the end of days, so you will be ready for the coming of the Lord. You are in the zone, the prophecy zone. So join us for the next hour as we look at world events in line with Bible prophecy, so you'll be informed and be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ.
1: Wow, thank you everybody for joining me on today's show. As the day approaches, we are starting a new series here on this program. We are going to be doing a series of a series on uh the state of Israel, the Jewish state of Israel. Today I was going to do um Islam, the Temple Mount. Well, actually I was going to do the Temple Mount Israel versus Islam. And I thought at first that I would combine the two together, but it turns out that I'm going to have to do it in two parts because the information that I have to share with you today is so overwhelming and well may I not say overwhelming, may I say it is so um integral to understanding where we're going to go in this series that i uh have so much on each section that is Israel and um uh on Israel and Islam that I am going to divide it into two programs this week. I will focus on Israel and their claim to the Temple Mount next week. I will focus on Islam and what they claim uh or their claim on the Temple Mount and we will take a look at both. Today I'll do a little bit of overview on Jerusalem. I will do a little bit of overview on um uh on the combination of the two and then I will go into the history of Israel and uh their claim on the Temple Mount. I have a couple of featured books today that I would like to uh, introduce to you. One of the books uh, that I have gleaned information from, besides the Bible, which is the most important text of the whole entire uh, uh, basis for this show, um, I will share with you the f- uh, the books that have given me insight. I really believe the body of Christ and uh, even those outside the body of Christ can give us insight to understanding what um, is uh, going on within the scriptures. The first book that I want to tell you about is, the un- is called The Unholy War for an Islamic Empire. This is a pan-Islamic empire uh lies dead in the ashes of two world wars and is seeking resurrection through violence. This is by Ron Cantrell. I will be taking some excerpts from this book uh, regarding our show today. Also, one who I have gleaned a lot of information and understanding from is a person by the name of Dor Gold. And he wrote a book called The Fight for Jerusalem, this is radical islam the west and the future city of the future of the holy city uh published by the new york times and he was a um israeli um ambassador and uh, he's a middle east expert i will t- be taking uh, information from his book uh be- a lot today because he is actually Uh, very inspiring as far as uh, the history of Jerusalem and the Israeli people. So, this is a live call-in show. I do want to encourage those who would like to call in and make a statement or uh, have a conversation with me not to call until the second hour. Uh, Depending on how we get through this information, um, we'll determine... You know how many calls I'll take, but if you do want to call in, the phone number is three four seven eight two six seven zero eight eight, and you're welcome to call uh, within the hour so that I can share some of this information with you first before we start any kind of discussions. Um, I'm still kind of setting up here because of all the information that I've uh, I've got to share today, and I quickly had to. Throw some stuff together and, and get my act together today. today. <clears throat> but this is this is all. And this is what the show is all about. This is kind of a you know a relaxed atmosphere. I also have before me a, a charting of Tim LaHaye. I don't use him a whole lot, but he's got a book here called Charting of the End Times, and I actually like his. Charts in here, I you know not all of the chart you know okay, you've heard me say this before that if you have a chart of the last days, that make sure you do it on cheap paper because uh that will make it easier to rip it up in case we are wrong in in um our assessment of what is going on, but I like his uh charts of the Daniel's seventies week um. And uh, he's got some great things in the, in the uh, uh, statue. And we are going to go into a little slightly into uh, Daniel 70, his weekend, Ezekiel. And now, what is the significance of the Temple Mount to Israel, to Islam, and to the world? You know, we're going to ask these questions Is the historical significance of the Temple Mount favorable to Israel, or is it favorable to Islam? Will Israel rebuild the Ezekiel's temple, the third Temple, on this location on the the site of the Temple Mount, or will it be somewhere else? Does Islam have claim to the site, and what is the significance of the dome of the rock that is now currently sitting on the temple the old temple site? Will it remain standing? How did it get there in the first place? and what is the meaning? What is its meaning and significance, and we will take a historical look at the plot of land and find out what the battle is truly all about, you know, this plot of land, it's a very important plot of land, and it has been throughout history, we're going to take a look at that, we will learn how Islam gained control of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and I will show you what kind of role it plays today in Islamic eschatology, which we were we've been talking about in my last several shows the the series I just ended on islam uh Islamic eschatology has a great uh, uh influence in this time and this day, and it will have something to do with the temple Mount uh We will also uh talk about israel's claim uh in history since the second temple was destroyed and how it fell into the hands of islam uh the show i'm telling you right now may surprise you there might be some things that that i'm asking or stating that might surprise you it might change the way you look at things a little bit i know it has me uh just like uh when I studied the eschatology of Islam, it it had me change some of the, the ways I looked at my own eschatology in uh biblical eschatology. Um, it you know, it it did a lot of changing for me. Um so hopefully this show will be intriguing to you. And some of the questions I just asked you are not going to be completely answered in this show. And it might not be completely answered in the next show. These two shows are to get a foundation created to actually answer a lot of these questions which I am doing in the series of Islam. Uh, I mean, uh, Israel, excuse me. I've been doing so many shows on Islam that that's kind of on my mind. Uh, So... With further ado, let's get ourselves going. Now, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says this. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will And I will do all that I please. Now, God, Jehovah God, not the God of Islam, which is the God of Allah, is Allah, not the same gods. But the Jehovah, the God of Israel, said these things. He knows, uh, and I believe in Him. I believe in Him as my source. As a Christian, I do not believe in the Islamic God Allah, for He is not the same God. But in the, the scriptures in Isaiah, God says he knows the end from the beginning. Um, and he has established Israel in Jerusalem for a time and a place, and what is happening today before our eyes are amazing events that we cannot ignore. We cannot ignore Israel being in the land since 1948, and we cannot ignore the fact that Islam has risen in the last 20 years to be a threat to the entire world. We cannot ignore that the temple is is a controversial section of the entire world, and that Islam actually has a mosque on the temple mount. We can't ignore this, and we you know I just have to ask myself why is it the way way it is today? why is uh the the mosque on the temple mountain, and I'm sure some of you have had the same questions. How is God gonna rebuild the temple of Ezekiel when the the Dome of the Rock sits on the Temple Mount? Well, maybe I, you know, in this series we can uh I could teach you a little bit of what the significance of all this is. Now in his book, uh <clears throat> Unholy War for an Islamic Empire, Ron Kant brings out a good point. Now let me share with you what he says. God's program for the earth has a distinct geographical focal point. All gripping events on the face of the earth will center around that point. Actually, it is happening in as much as the ratio of news coverage that centers on Israel outstrips other nations by a measurable portion. And we would ask that, okay, well, Israel outstrips Other nations, but lately uh, Islam has risen to the surface, and we see what's happening in Damascus and Syria. Syria, but when we really take a look at it, it goes back to Israel. It really does. The prophecy of Scripture is happening before our eyes, and uh, we are taking Israel's taking center stage. And for some reason, Islam is taking that center stage. Now, I've put forth in my other shows what I thought Islam um, had to do with all of this and and their eschatology. Uh, The wrap-up, going on with what he says, the wrap-up of the age will have an ending destination. The focal point for the beginning and the focal point for the end are one and the same. God knows. God knows what he started, God knows how he's going to end it, and he has a plan that he's orchestrating and working out all together. Now, uh, Kentrell goes on to say the good news is that the undue media focus on the Middle East has a predetermined purpose for antiquity, from antiquity. Ezekiel tells us that in the end of time, hordes from the north will come down to take a spoil from Israel's Israel. In in this verse, Jerusalem is referred to as the center of the earth. Ezekiel thirty eight twelve in in our SC specifically says that a nation will will rise against <clears throat> rise against Jerusalem. Uh, to To seize his fo- to uh, seize spoil and carry off plunder to assail the waste places that are now inhabited, and the people who are gathered from the nations who are acquiring cattle cattle and goods who live at the center of the earth, so uh, we talked about how um, the nations in ezekiel thirty eight is going to come down and take spoil from Jerusalem from the center of the earth um, Chantral explains the Hebrew word Teber, center, means navel. A physical, personal, mental description is given to the prophet to describe the city. Nevertheless, Jerusalem is center indeed. It was in the past and will be in the future. In one of the pictures on, on the trailer of my show, I display an old map. Now, this ancient map was inspired by the Silk and Spice Routes from the Far East, to Europe and Africa. The frankincense and myrrh routes from Africa to Europe and Asia. Jerusalem was perceived as the hinge of the world. In the map she is depicted as the center of the earth. Now, in this when you see this picture, it looks like a little clove of three sections and Israel was located in Jerusalem especially right smack in the middle and in the middle of that that three sections was Jerusalem, so this was considered in ancient times the center of the earth in biblical uh, uh prophecy in biblical uh, end time scenarios. Israel is the center every to interpret prophecy correctly, we have to see things in light of Israel, not in other nations uh, but everything related to Israel and working out from from that point on. And then other nations and their interaction with Israel is interpreted according to uh, Israel as the center. Zechariah 2 says, Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. Ask, he asked, Where are you going? He answered me, to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. Then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said to him, run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because the great number of men and livestock in it, and I myself will be the wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be his glory within. Come. Come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, O Zion, escape, you who live in the daughter of Babylon. For this is what the Lord Almighty says. After he has honored me and has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. He be still before the Lord all mankind because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Amazing that we can see a lot of what is said here in ezekiel chapter 2 coming coming to fruition how is in 1948 the the nation of israel was formed and people from babylon from the far reaches of the north from all the nations in the diaspora that were were dispersed throughout all the world is now coming back to israel Uh, and Jerusalem, but we still have the issue of the Temple Mount. We still have the issue of Jerusalem and what is happening there. Now, why do I consider this important? Zachariah sees a man heading for Jerusalem with a measuring line in his hand. He was stopped by a heavenly decree from completing his task. This vision is, is of our present day. Mr. Cantrell gives us some interesting insight on this. Not until the middle of A.D. 1800s did the populace of Jerusalem live outside its walls. Sir Moses Montefiore, the wealthy Dutch philanthropist who read that in the latter times before Messiah came, Jerusalem will be an unwalled city, he paid for the construction of its suburb called Yemen Moshe, and coaxed the inhabitants of Jerusalem to live in the new neighborhood by paying them stipends. So he he actually was trying to get people to live out of Jerusalem to live outside the city to kind of fulfill this uh, Bible prophecy. Excuse me. They would live in the new houses, but what would happen? What happened is that they would live in the new houses by day, but run into the safety of the walls of the city at night if Sierra was ahead of his time, but he saw the future, and he was trying to get it to come to pass, but God would make it come to pass in his own time. Jerusalem today now is over ten times the size of the walled section of the old city of Jerusalem. The small area could never hold all the inhabitants. Today, So we now see today, in our time, that Jerusalem actually is overflowing its, its boundaries of the city. Only one God ever chose Jerusalem, that God is Jehovah, the God of the Hebrews. The Hebrews followed one God in the midst of surrounding kingdoms who were given to the worship of many gods. In chapter 3 of Zechariah, the Lord himself addresses Satan with a strong rebuke. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And this is out of Zechariah 3, 2. This was vital for Zechariah's time, but has once again become vital for our time, since much of the world has grown confused about who God is. The lines describe Jehovah the God who chose Jerusalem above all other cities. Our dispute that we are, you know, bringing to the table today and then on my next show is who does Israel represent? Now, today you're going to see the Israel side and what Israel claims uh, about Jerusalem and what the scriptures say about Jerusalem. Allah, the God of the Muslim world, and latecomer to the Mesopotamian pantheon of gods never chose Jerusalem. And you have to understand that they never chose Jerusalem. So why, then, is Jerusalem being fought for? Why is it that Islam is has taken over the Temple Mount? Why is the a mosque, uh, the Dome of the Rock, considered, Considered or It sounds like it's considered one of the most important uh, synagogues in Islamic um, religion. Well, we're going to find out what it is. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of taste of it for, for right now. And then we're going to go into it more in detail next week or next time I do the show, which I plan on next week unless something happens. Um, <clears throat> but stay tuned. Um the proof is that Jerusalem is not mentioned once in the Quran. So in 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 Islam, uh Jerusalem is not men- mentioned once in the Quran. The times that it is mentioned in the hadith sayings of Muhammad related to re- related by others are rarely to designate it as a holy site, whereas the Bible speaks of the chosen city of Jerusalem eight hundred and eleven times, the Muslims chose different cities to serve as their capitals at different times. They chose Baghdad, they chose Damascus, they sacked and destroyed Alexandra and shunned Memphis, creating Cairo as a new Egyptian capital. Finally, they settled on Constantinople and its Christian Byzantine name that they changed to Istanbul. They they never once chose Jerusalem all this time. It has been said that Jerusalem was the third on the Islamic list of places of importance to their faith after Mecca and Medina. That, too, is not true since capitals cities of successive empires never took Jerusalem into consideration. In fact, just the opposite is true. Now, this may be shocking to some of you listening to the program right now, because for centuries, uh, Jerusalem has been disputed and the Temple Mount uh, taken over by Islam in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, today we will we will I will show you the history that validates the piece or the piece or area of land and uh show you why the statement Ron Cantrell makes above is true is true now let's first of all uh, listen to muhammad's view of jerusalem and the temple mount this is from the hadith writings by others that that, that heard what Muhammad said and did. Okay, so this is when in Islam, Umar relates the story. Now, while some quote, while some people are offering morning prayer at Kaaba, a man came to them and said, a Quranic order has been revealed to Allah's apostles tonight that he should face the Kaaba at Mecca in prayer, so you too should turn your faces toward it. At that moment, their faces were towards Shem, which is another name for Jerusalem. And on hearing that, they turned toward the Kaaba at Mecca. One of the pictures that you see um, displaying on my show page, you will notice that uh, Muslims are in prayer. But if you look carefully at the picture, you will see that they are pointing, uh, facing, with their heads down, uh, towards Mecca and not towards the Temple Mount. They are not facing and praying towards the Temple Mount but to Mecca. Uh, and it's kind of an interesting picture that you uh, can see in this in this section. I will even have more pictures uh, located on my site as the day approaches dot com. And you will see more pictures displaying some of these things. Islam claims that Jerusalem is one of Islam's holy sites. We will examine their claim. The fact that God chose Jerusalem is a powerful faucet in Zechariah's message. The prophet, whose name means God remembers, is very relevant for our day. Now let me share a little more of what Ron Contrell shares in his book, Unholy War for an Islamic Empire. Contrell describes how God perfectly chose Jerusalem to be a beacon for the world, and this city has been in the heart of the Jewish people from its birth. Jerusalem lives in the heart of every Jew throughout the world. It weaves its presence through all the feasts, Fasts and festivals. Jerusalem has center stage from the beginning and is now spotlighted once again at the end. The national anthem of Israel, Hatikva, tells the centrality of Jerusalem in the heart of every Jew. Jerusalem unlikely to be, the cho- be chosen for exalted destiny, is center stage for all that is to come in the future for the followers of Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah. Perched high in the desert mountains of Israel, Jerusalem sits cradled upon a bridge that is a watershed d- directing rainfall both east and west. The east side of the city channels precipitation to the Dead Sea, The West West Jerusalem's rainwater rushes to the Mediterranean. From certain areas of Jerusalem's east side, you can see all the way to Amman, Jordan. From some western vantage points, you can see all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. This purge in the mountains would have made Jerusalem an illogical choice for the capital of any successful kingdom. The access roads leading from commercial trading centers ran miles both east and west of Jerusalem. The Via Maris, the main entrance north-south highway, ran through Israel on the coastal plain. The King's Highway ran north and south through the Jordan River Valley, some 60 miles east a mountain range dividing the two. Jerusalem was not a a stop off on trade routes. To visit Jerusalem, one had to ascend 2,600 feet on twisting mountain roads from either direction. Though out of the way, the centrality of Jerusalem and God's plan begins with the Genesis account of Abraham's sacrifices of Isaac on Mount Moriah. And later, he and the king of Salem, break bread and, and sharing a communal cup of wine. History is punctuated regularly with Jerusalem thereafter. Finally brought to its heavenly appointed destiny under King David, who moved Israel's capital city from Hebron up to the crystal clear era of Jerusalem, the cycle that will end with Jerusalem as center stage began in earnest. The world in the first century ended around Jerusalem, or centered around Jerusalem. In fact, the ancient pinwheel map mentioned, you know, when I'm, what I mentioned above, you know, when I mentioned it, and that's also on my show uh, screen, proves God to be the universe's grandest advertising campaign manager. He specifically placed his people at the hinge of history where all trade routes would converge. Far enough removed for her safety, yet central enough to influence a world gone wild after multiple gods. Jerusalem stood as a standard, raised to the glory of the one supreme god of the universe. Fascinating, fascinating. Now each time Jerusalem became... Bereft of her children, she languished in sorrow and poverty, yet a seed falling into dry ground, she, as a, a seed falling into dry ground, she waited for the dew of heaven to cause her to spring to life once again. The return of God's chosen was the moisture of life, and Jerusalem always responded. Jerusalem was the hub of a Jewish population that spread out like the spokes of a wheel in all directions. The account of Jesus' disciples in the book of Acts documents the nations uh, from which Jewish worshippers traveled on the three pilgrimages. pilgrimage festivals where they were commanded to come up to Jerusalem to present themselves before the Lord. So we see Jerusalem as a center kind of connecting the south and the north and the east and the west all together on these trade routes, but yet Jerusalem is centered high above that particular route where to actually go to Jerusalem, you had to make the effort to go there. Jesus' directive uh, to his disciples um, to fulfill the Great Commission had at its center none other than Jerusalem. And we see this in Acts 1.8 when he said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Living in Israel was not mandatory for Jews, according to scriptures, but the three pilgrimages, uh, the festivals were mandatory, Passover, Shavuot, which is Pentecost, and Sukkot, tabernacles. During those festivals, Jerusalem's population grew to astound to astounding proportions. The city became a bustling center of worship, sacrifice, and thanksgiving to God. So God perfectly set this up, and you can see how he formulated and made this happen at specific times and with the greatest effect. Each of these festivals fell during the busiest season for merchants and travelers, i.e. the spring and fall. Camel caravans, at at times as many as 2,000 camels strong, brought spices and frankincense, peacocks, and exotic nuts from the southern reaches of the Arabian Peninsula, peninsula worth um, as much as $12 in modern currency. From the silk route, as far as China, the caravans traveled to Europe laden with costly cargoes of silk fabric costly dyes and fine china vessels the common denominator was that they all had to skirt the area close to jerusalem isaiah 49 6 says this it is is it, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of jacob and bring back those of israel i have kept i will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. It has never been popular that the Jewish nation should be centrally located. The Jebusites resisted Israel's taking of Jebus under King David, the Canaanites, Waged stiff warfare against Israel, and the Philistines were always challenging Israel and their God, whom they thought to be a local god whose might was confirmed to the mountains. The surrounding nations were terrified of the Jews as they came out of Egypt, returning from the, returning to their homeland. So, you can see that. Uh, The history, you know, and and how God has been with them. When Yeshua touches down upon the mountain of Olives at His second coming, all will not be bliss this is not going to be a happy time and it's important uh to remember that that it's easy to forget in our anxious expectation of the return of the messiah that he returns to make war with those who fought against jerusalem says in zechariah 14 3 and 4 Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half of them moving south. And in the end and the city he so determinately chose will be the site where all battles, kingdoms and empires end. A great thousand years we see from the scriptures and from prophecy will begin here just as Abraham began his and uh, the nation God used the Abraham and his nation to start the testimony of God. This is, will, will be also where he will start uh, his reign for a thousand years, and all peoples of the earth will come to Jerusalem to worship the one God and King. Now in his book, The Fight for Jerusalem, Radical, called Radical Islam, the West, and the Future of the Holy City, Dor Gold has some great insights that I'd like to share with you. Um, today and I am going to go in and out of what he has said and what he gives for insight as far as history is concerned Uh, like I said earlier he is the best selling author uh, by New York Times and he is also the Israeli ambassador and a Middle East expert so he does have a lot to say with regards to Israel and its history now next week I will be talking about the you know next week I will be talking about uh, uh, Islam's viewpoint uh, regarding the Temple Mount, and then after that I will be talking about dividing Jerusalem, God's reaction and the outcome of the nations who divide her. <clears throat> uh, you know, and then if you think that dividing the city is a new thing, you will be surprised to, to find that for decades now. Since 1967, we, the United States, which I am from, uh, um, and others have been trying to divide the city. But you'll you'll have to wait until we get to that show um, to hear details of, on that. So that's a... Turn our attention to the the Temple Mount and its city and the the historical claims of Israel and the Temple Mount. Now, the spiritual heart of Israel's capital, a walled enclave located just inside the former border designated the Eastern Wall. Uh, <clears throat> Or the eastern half of the city, Jerusalem's old city, uh, captured in the Six Day War of June 1967, occupies it just uh, occupies over a half a square mile, and is in is and is divided into Jewish, Muslim, Christian, and Armenian quarters. So, for a small portion of the city, it is divided four ways. It is home to some of the holiest sites of the world three major abrahamic religions and the reason we say that they that it's a, the holiest it is uh the home of these sites is because both of course we're going to talk about israel today and uh christianity and islam all claim rights to the site of course islam is uh you know, claims that Abraham actually blessed the son of Ishmael, and actually was the, he was the one sacrificed and not Isaac, so there is great controversy on uh, the correctness of that. Uh, the Bible actually states Isaac, uh, the Quran has changed it, and they say that we have changed it, uh, to, or they say that the Bible changed it from Ishmael to Isaac, and then Christianity, we you know, uh, believe in the uh, Old Testament and the New Testament, which centers out of Jerusalem. So that's why we can claim that it's claimed that these are the holiest sites of the world's three major Abrahamic religions. The Temple Mount is the most sensitive location. Even though Jerusalem is talked about a lot, the Temple Mount is probably the most central, uh, sensitive location of the whole entire uh, city. A hill, it, the, uh, the Temple Mount is a hilltop platform complex, and it's got 35 acres. Um, it is the former location of the biblical first temple, the Temple of Solomon, which stood from the 10th century BC or BCE is what uh, the common the common era before the common era until its destruction by the Babylonians in 586 BC. The second temple was constructed on the same site and stood from 515 BC until the Romans demolished it in 70 AD. The Temple Mount is now largely off limit limits for organized Jewish prayer, believe it or not, which uh instead is conducted at the western wall. And you can see some pictures that I have up on my side the the uh Uh, the focus of my site or the show about you can see the western wall and you can also see some of the jewish people praying at the western wall the western wall is a retaining wall from the second temple and it's located adjacent to and just below the temple mount the temple mount is also considered the third holiest site to muslims who refer to it as as Haram al-Sharif, and that means the Noble Sanctuary. It is the home to two major Islamic shrines. The first of these, the Dome of the Rock, built in the late 7th century, houses the rock from which Muhammad is said to have ascended to heaven to receive the commandment for Muslim prayers. Now, the second site is the Al-Qasah Mosque, the largest mosque in Jerusalem, which, surprisingly, that is not the Dome of the Rock, which is on, actually on the Temple Mount. It was completed in the early 8th century. Not far from the Temple Mount, it, it, in the Christian quarter, stands for the Holy Sepulchre. It was originally built by the Roman Emperor Constantine in the 4th century at Golgotha the site where Jesus was crucified. The church is venerated by Christians as the location of Jesus' tomb, which he no longer is in, we believe. He has risen, risen physically from the dead and is a major site for Christian pilgrimage. There's a lot of people who will take a tour on Israel and will visit this particular site. Now, after seizing East Jerusalem in 1948, Jordan's Arab Legion completely evicted the Jewish population from the old city. The Jewish quarter was set aflame, its homes were looted, and dozens of synagogues were destroyed or vandalized. Tombstones from the ancient Jewish cemetery on the Mount of Olives were converted to latrines. And if you don't know what a latrine is, that is a toilet. (laughs) For the following 19 years, Jews were prevented from praying at the holy sites, including the Western Wall. The Jordanians also barred Christians and Christian instruction from buying um, land and other restricted. The rights of Jerusalem's Christian population, which dropped over 50% during the period of Jordanian rule. Now, upon capturing the old city in 1967, Israel decided on a new approach to governing the city. It adopted a law protecting the holy sites of all regions and guaranteeing free their free access to all worship. So, <clears throat> So the Jordanian rule was very strict and destructive to both Christians and Jews. And then when the Jews got it in 1967, which, you know, our president, Barack Obama, wants to give back to the Palestinians or to Arabs or to Muslims, uh, they want to give this part back as well. Now, in the news, we see that there is a campaign to divide Jerusalem and to take land from Israel to create a Palestinian state. At the heart of this is the battle for the Temple Mount. But the Palestinians' battle for Jerusalem incorporates more than just the frontal military assault. Its first stages entailed a campaign by Arafat, and the Intifada to completely delegitimize the Israeli claim to the city. His central argument was that the biblical temple never existed on the Temple Mount or even in Jerusalem. Now, that sounds silly to those of us looking at it with a historical and biblical knowledge, but they were serious. Now, Arafat he boldly asserted that there is nothing there, i.e. no trace of a temple on the Temple Mount, further insisting that Solomon's temple was not in Jerusalem, but Neblis. Take a little break here, and we'll, we'll tell you what Nablus is. Nablus is known in, Shechem, in Hebrew as Shechem, the biblical Shechem. It is in the Palestinian city, It is a Palestinian city in the northern West Bank, go figure, which they have no access to at the moment, approximately 63 kilometers north of Jerusalem with the population of 126,132 inhabitants. Um, It is uh, located in a strategic position between Mount Evil and Mount Gerizim, and it is a Palestinian commercial and cultural center. Now, why they why he would say this is kind of strange. Later, though, uh, Arafat uh, changed his story a couple of years after that to f- a further distance than even that. And Nablus is also known for the where the Samaritans set up their worship site in biblical history. Now, Arifant's doctrine, you know, of the temple, you know, denial, you would think that, you know, people would laugh at that, but it it quickly became a new Palestinian uh, dogma that was even repeated with the firmest conviction by Western-educated Palestinian officials who are assiduously courted by the international media. <clears throat> so you would think that Arafat's claim wouldn't get anywhere, but it did. For example, Nabil Shahas, a high-ranking Palestinian minister trained at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business, told El Ayam newspaper this, Israel demands control of the Temple Mount. Based based on its claims that its fictitious temple stood there. Sahib al a frequent Palestinian spokesman, spokesman on CNN, tried to Islamicize the biblical temple a month after Camp David when he told a French reporter, for Islam, there never was a Jewish temple at Al-Quds, Jerusalem, but a distant mosque. And Jasser Abd rabbo a Palestinian negotiator and former Palestinian minister of cabinet affairs, told Le Monde there was no archaeological, arch, archaeological evidence that the temple ever existed on the Temple Mount. Arafat's eventual successor, Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen is another name for him, also embraced temple denial. The Jews claimed that 2,000 years ago they had a temple, he declared. I challenge that this is so. Temple denial spread across the Middle East like wildfire from from the editorial pages of Al-Fazira in Saudi Arabia to well-funded international seminars in the United Arab Emirates. It even subtly slipped into the writing of Middle East-based Western reporters. Thus, Time Magazine's Ramesh Rotten Nisar in October 2003 described the Temple Mount as a place where Jews believed Solomon and Herod built the First and Second Temple. In three years, Arafat's campaign had convinced a leading U.S. weekly to relate the existence of Jerusalem's biblical temples as a debatable matter of religious belief rather than historical fact. So, you know, how rumors can start or things can start. People picked up on this and promoted it. This is what was said about the Temple Mount in relation to Israel. Area. Arabia's Mohammed bin Saudi Islamic University said King Solomon's temple was in fact a mosque. Yamark University in northern Jordan found two German contributors to contend that the kingdoms of David and Solomon never existed. The school of European thought after two Danish history professors claimed that the biblical stories of David and Solomon were fixed fictions invented hundreds of years later. And later, a new theory emerged in academia charging that even if the house of David existed, the early biblical monarchs were no more than village leaders. That means they weren't kings and all that. So... The Palestinian leadership advanced the creed of the temple denial on two contradictory tracks. While they adamantly maintained that the Temple of Solomon was fictitious, they simultaneously attempted to destroy any archaeological evidence proving otherwise. Their control of key archaeological sites was rooted in the special arrangements Israel itself had implemented for the Temple Mount. Palestinian controlled walk, Walks sought to erode Israel's prerogatives on the Temple Mount as well. Now, the efforts began in September of 1996 when the WACS first expelled archaeological supervisors from the Israel and from the Israel Antiquities Authorities from the Temple Mount. Although periodically allowed to return, the WACS in September 2000, permanently barred the Israeli supervisors from the Temple Mount, where the Wachs was constructing two huge underground mosques inside the Temple Mount itself. So let's take a step back and look at Jerusalem and the legacy of ancient Israel and see how much some of this stands. Now I know you guys are probably one, you know, thinking, "What's the whole point of this?" These are serious things because people actually believe this, and it is being promoted in the news today, and it actually has legitimacy in claiming of who the Temple Mount actually belongs to. So we're going to take a look back at uh, the ancient Israel for a little bit, probably the remainder of the show, and find out whether or not these things are true and what Israel can claim as a historical fact regarding Israel and the Temple Mount. Now, Jerusalem emerges as both the political and religious capital of ancient Israel in the Hebrew Bible, and we, I believe, this strongly. <clears throat> um, it was referred to the Holy City near, nearly 700 times, and there's a dispute about how many, between 700 and 811 times. Jerusalem was also the goodly mountain that Moses saw from afar across the Jordan River where he beseeched God to allow him to enter the Promised Land. Consequently, the memory of Jerusalem and its key historical elements, the House of David, the Israelite dynasty established, by King David, the first ruler of the United Kingdom of Israel, and the temple first built by David's son Solomon remained at the heart of the collective identity of the Jewish people for centuries, even after the development of Judaism. Um, Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um. Even after ancient Israel lost its independence, that's what I meant to say. But the the city of unique importance in the development of Judaism is not limited to the uh, early biblical period alone. Jerusalem became permanently fixed in the hopes and prayers articulated in the prophets of Israel for the future of their nation. I believe, as well as Dor Gold, who gives a lot of insight on this, that it is, it is essential to look back at the city's biblical history to understand why, for three millennia, Jerusalem has remained central to the Jews', spiritually, uh, stu- the Jews spiritual aspirations and national unity. Before the reign, reign of King David, Jerusalem was situated along the boundaries separating the lands of the Israelite tribes of Benjamin and Judah, Although it was technically within the tribe of Benjamin's territory, the city had not been formally incorporated by any tribe and was still largely uninhabited uh, uh, by Israel, but by the Jebusites, along the Hittite and local peoples. Now, as a result, as the twelve, uh, as a result, the twelve tribes of Israel settled throughout Canaan. Jerusalem was one of the, one of the last areas left outside all of their jurisdictions. In the end, the city provided a convenient neutral ground to serve as the Israelites' united capital once King David captured it from the Jebusites in 1000 BC. David believed the new capital could bind the tribes together as a single people under the authority of his newly created united monarchy. So he situated himself there rather than in Hebron, where he had previously ruled over the tribe of Judah. Jerusalem's status as the Jewish people's internal national and spiritual focal point was not sealed until after David's reign, when his son and successor Solomon constructed the temple. You've got you to gotta hear this carefully. It wasn't until you know, the, the spiritual focal point and the accumulation of the nation or the solidifying the nation was not until the construction of the temple. Now, he built, he built this temple on Mount Moriah, where Jewish tradition ta- taught that Abram had tested generations earlier, was tested earlier with the binding and near sacrifice of his son Isaac. It was also where Jacob slept and dreamt of a ladder serving as the link between heaven and earth in Genesis 28:11. The site seems to, feel, uh, to fulfill prophecy from Deuteronomy, which foreshadows the temple of Israel's so religious center. But look only to the site that the Lord your God will choose amidst all your tribes as a habitation to establish his name there in 12:5. For the ancient Israelites, the temple linked the religious practices of the Davidic monarchy with the monotheistic legacy established centuries earlier by their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and conveyed in revela- it was conveyed in the revelation of Moses. Now, it is important to notice here before going any further, that Israel wasn't truly established as a nation until the temple was built by Solomon. So in light of this, I asked these questions: Is Israel biblically completely settled in the land today? Is the last generation spoken of by Jesus in Matthew 23:34 when he says, "This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened? after the Third Temple is rebuilt, instead of in 1948, as we previously suspected? Now that sounds crazy, but maybe after what you hear today, you will be asking the same questions. The generation of 1948, as we know, is coming to an end. Now we are disputing what signifies a generation. Maybe we have it all wrong altogether and maybe it is the generation that after the temple is rebuilt. And let me let me tell you what I've got and let me tell you show you what I've got. This is some very interesting questions to ask. Let's first continue establishing the fact for those listeners who question the historicity of the Jewish people and the Temple and the Temple Mount. I'm sure that there are some today who are listening to this program that actually uh, believe some of the things said about the Temple Mount and wonder who really actually owns it and how uh, where we're going to go with this. Uh Dorgold gives some more insight on this. And he says, what was the temple's significance to the Israelites? You know, he asks this question. And then he says, in 1961, an ancient Judean tomb dating from roughly 700 B.C. was discovered with Hebrew inscription that is one of the earliest testaments to the existence of the first temple. So he goes into, you know, talking about the history and the historical revelance and also the archaeological um, evidence that we have today. On it, it read The Mount of Moriah, thou hast favored, the dwelling of Yah or Yahweh, YHWH. In short, the Israelites viewed the temple as the house of God. They never believed that God physically dwelt inside the temple, as was the belief concerning the gods of pagan temples, but rather that the temple represented the earthly place where man could come close to God. The word in biblical Hebrew for the burnt offering made in temple ceremonies was korban, which which did not mean sacrifice, but rather was derived from the word kerva or closeness. In later centuries, rabbinic literature would assert that the temple was situated opposite the gate of heaven. The idea that Jerusalem was the home to the divine presence or even brought the individual closer to that presence was a powerful stimulant to both the development of the city and the unity of the Israelite nation. Worshippers flocked to the capital where the temple service bonded the people together in acts of religious piety. Pilgrims streamed to Jerusalem, both for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the nation's sins were forgiven, and as well as well mentioned earlier for the three yearly festivals, Peshach, which is Passover, Shavuot, Pentecost, and Sukkot, Tabernacles. Indeed, this they indeed to this day these holidays are known as the three pilgrimage festivals now the temple of solomon had two main functions first it served as the permanent home to the altar where the sacrificial service was conducted according to biblical law this service was led by priests descended from moses's brother aaron Additionally, a sanctuary within the temple called the Holy of Holies housed the Ark of the Covenant containing the original Ten Commandments. In Hebrew, this area was called the Dever, which according to the rabbinic literature came from the same root of Dever, which means speech, and referred to the place from where God's word went forth to the world. The Holy of Holies could only be entered once a year and one only by one person, the high priest. Moreover, according to the oral law of Judaism, it was built over the even Shatuya, even shatua, foundation stone. Um, and those of you who are really good in Hebrew, just forgive me, have grace on me for being for not for either slandering or slaughtering, uh your words. But it's the foundation stone. And the foundation stone was the point at which the creation of the world began. That's what it was. It was meant for. This assertion would be incorporated into the Zohar, the Book of Splendor, where which serves as the foundation of Kabbalah or Jewish mysticism. And that we will have a show for later in talking about this. Okay, so there is some kind of mystical uh, element to this, which is probably more cultic than anything, but. Uh we will talk about Kabbalah and we are talk about Jewish mysticism in another show. Um I also want to talk about some of the uh Jewish Hebraic roots and cults and things that, that uh are popping up all over today. Um the sacred name or the body of Messiah. I hope to talk about that towards my series so that we can understand what is happening in our day and our time as Christians. Uh that would be a show for us Christians who are uh trying to uh understand some of the Hebrew uh words and and what is actually where it's going to. You know, um there's a lot of cults that are actually pulling people away from Christianity. That's a little side note. Now thanks to the uh vital role played by its temple in Jewish ritual, Jerusalem eclipsed all of their Jewish religious sites and became the faith's spiritual center. Even Mount Sinai where Moses received divine revelation could not compete with Jerusalem for it was the Ark of the Covenant and its sacred content that retained the sanctity of of the Sinai revelation, not the mountain itself. By housing the foundation stone and the Ark of the Covenant, the temple linked together two moments of divine intervention on earth, the creation of the world and the revelation of the Ten Commandments at Sinai. It would tie the particularistic faith of the ancient Israelites to a universalistic mission, meaning one who that reaches out to the entire world. And because the Sanhedrin, the supreme legal body of ancient Israel, was housed on the Temple Mount as well, the whole area linked the evolution of Judaic common law, especially in the Second second Temple period, with the principles derived from divine revelation. The temple replaced the tabernacle or the temple meeting as the focal point, point of Jewish ritual. The tabernacle was a large tent in which the uh, same temple services were conducted while the Israelites were in the Sinai desert during the exodus from e- Egypt and the 40 days that they wandered in the desert. But afterward, as the Israelites moved from from and through Canaan, from the desert through Canaan, they established a number of temporary locations of the tabernacle, and these would include Gelgal, Shil- Shiloh, Nov, and Givion. Givion. Before it, uh, fi- then, and those were all before it, finally came to rest in Jerusalem. If the tabernacle's probability symbolized the, the Uh, portability symbolized the the period of Israel's wanderings, then the temple represented the the permanent home they planned for Jerusalem. The prophet Isaiah stressed, stressed this point in this description of the temple as a tent that shall not be transported, whose pegs shall never be pulled up and none of whose ropes shall break. Isaiah 33:20 Now who owns the area? Well, David fortified the surrounding area around Jerusalem. He purchased, with money, the threshing floor of the Jebusite, of the Jebusite, Arona on the adjacent Mount Moriah, where King Solomon would later build the temple. So Israel purchased, or David. King David purchased this land. So it was rightfully there by purchase. Theirs by purchase. King Hiram, the Phoenician ruler of Tyre, sent cedar logs to Jerusalem along with the mission of carpenters and masons who assisted in building a new royal palace. So you've got the history, the historical data of the Phoenician ruler of Tyre sending uh, their wares and their, their help to the building of this temple, which was purchased by David on Mount Moriah. Now, here are some evidences of the temple on on the Temple Mount, um, some archaeological evidences that have been uh, since uh, shown uh, that Israel was once on this place. 2005, Israeli archaeologist Elat Il- Mezer excavated an immense stone structure south of the Temple Mount, just where the Bible relates that King David's palace stood. The unique style of hewn stones discovered nearby was rare for central Israel at the time, but consisted with Phoenicians' construction work of the sort that would have been brought in by King Hiram of Tyre. Pottery found underneath uh, structures debated to the, uh, de- dated debated <laughs> to the 12th and 11th centuries B.C., indicating a likelihood that the structure itself was built in the 10th century B.C. when King David ruled. Archaeologists' evidence from the later periods also attest to the House of David as a powerful historical dynasty, not a just a leader, you know, a shepherd leader or whatever, or, or, you know, it was a a powerful historical dynasty. Ironically, much of this evidence is provided by Israel's ancient enemies, whose records show that David's name was still popularly associated with the entirety of the Israelites' territory, even after his death. Stone fragments found in Israel's Tel Dan archaeological site in 1993 attest to the victor- victory against both Israel and Judah by Amrân Damascus, a king to the north of ancient Israel in what is today Syria. Israel's Finkelstein and Neil Asher Silberstein who have been prolific in challenging the veracity of the biblical narrative, concluded the house of David was known throughout the region. This clearly validates the biblical description of a figure named David becoming the founder of the dynasty of the Judahite kings in Jerusalem. Archaeologists have also discovered Solomonic Gaze, around the remains of fortified cities, as described in 1 Kings 9.15. Charles Warren's initial excavation of parts of what are believed to be the Solomonic gates in Jerusalem back in the 1860s greatly complicated the argument that Solomon was but a village chief. One of the gates' towers were estimated to be 79 feet wide and nearly 40 feet high. The biblical uh, narrative is striking in that the temple's construction is the only event dated in relation to the exodus from Exodus. It was built 480 years afterward, which implies that the exodus only truly ended upon the conquest of Jerusalem and the completion of the ten- temple. In the 408. It's a year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. That's First Kings six one. This characteristic demonstrates that securing political freedom in Jerusalem and across Israel was a prerequisite for building the temple. Now, did you did you hear me say that? I'll say it again. This characteristic, which is saying that uh, the Exodus only truly ended upon the conquest of Jerusalem and the completion of the Temple, demonstrates that securing political freedom in Jerusalem and across Israel was a prerequisite for building the Temple. So, I mean, they, they had the conquest of the land and then they could build the temple and that uh, so now in 1948 uh, Israel became a nation they they have the land so now after 60 some years I mean 62 years uh, a little bit longer uh, the temple is still not built so um, is it because they don't have all the land Uh, what would be the reason or what is it, the reason of Islam being on the Temple Mount? Probably a combination of both. There's a way that spiritual attainments were limited as long as they were nomadic or under foreign tutelage. Political sovereignty was therefore a prerequisite for fully realizing their spirituality. The fulfillment of their faith required that they be a free people in their own homeland. In fact, Judaism itself was always extremely tied to a commitment to to political freedom. The exiles, spiritual and malays were tied to their national status as stateless, stateless refugees. The Jews constructed... Uh, consecrated Jerusalem with the completion of the second temple in 515 BC. So when, when they returned from Babylon, what was the first thing they did? They built the temple. They established the temple. Uh, Nehemiah went and established the temple. Uh, it was, there was no question of who who the land belonged to. It belonged to Israel. There was no question where the temple was going to be built. It was Jerusalem. Uh, it was their, their returning to their land and building the temple that solidified them as a nation again. And they consecrated uh, Jerusalem with the completion of that second temple. A few decade, decades later, after King Cyrus of Persia crushed Babylonia and allowed the Judean, Judean rest. Exiles to return to Jerusalem and reestablish their self-government. Uh, they were able to do build the temple, and with their uh, Cyrus, King Cyrus's um, uh, support and help. Help. Now coins have been found from the Persian period, engraved with the word Yahud, which was the name of the new. Jewish commonwealth in which Jerusalem served as the restored capital in the time of King Cyrus. Amazing. Interesting information. The Midrash, part of the early rabbinic literature compiled after the destruction of the Second Temple breaks down various possible Hebraic roots of the words Moriah, which is understood to mean the place where instruction, horaha, religious ah, ura, or light, aura with an H, went forth to the world. In short, the religious acts associated with Mount Moriah have universal meaning for all mankind. Now, to understand madrash a little bit, uh, it means to investigate or to study. It is a homiletic method of biblical exegesis, the term also refers to the whole compilation of homiletic teaching of the Bible. majosh is a way of interpreting biblical stories that goes beyond simple distillation of religious, legal, moral teachings. It fills in many gaps left in the biblical narrative regarding events and personalities that are only hinted at. The Midrash offers further explanation of this tendency toward universalism, and I say that in regard to Israel and Jerusalem as the light to the Gentiles in its analysis of the world, Jerusalem itself. In Genesis, Abraham calls Jerusalem the place which the Lord will show, but Jerusalem, according to the Midrash, already had this name, Shalem, which is which is what... Uh, which was given by Shem, the son of Noah. Thus, Jerusalem is not only relevant to the tradition of Abraham, the Midrash concludes, but rather to all the sons of Noah, in other words, to the rest of mankind. Therefore, it suggests that God chose the name Jerusalem, Jerusalem, as a combination of Yerah and Shalem. So it's a a light to all the earth, which God is uh, trying to bring to understanding of who he is. Temple services were intended not only to benefit the Israelites. Sacrifices were regularly offered to promote a peace for the entire world. The temple sacrifices on the festival of Sukkot according to numbers 29:12 to 31 required an offering of 70 bulls over a seven-day period. The Talmud, Sukkot 55.b, explains that these rituals were offered for the atonement of the 70 nations of the world which according to Genesis and 10 uh 10 uh 2 through 29 const- constituted the sum total of all humanity. And in Genesis 10, 2-29 is a list of the of genealogies of the sons of Japheth, Ham, and Shem. According to biblical law, non-Jews were in fact permitted to offer sacrifices at the temple, a practice that became particularly widespread during the second temple period. The historian Josephus names Numerous kings across the entire near east known to have brought sacrifices to the temple, including Ptolemy the third antiochus uh the seventh, he also claims that Alexander the Great brought an offering to the temple during his campaigns in three thirty one b c Judaism's ancient universalism had its limits though, so you know. Even though others could sacrifice and bring offerings, it did have its limits and the boundaries in which God had set. The Bible denounces the adoption by certain kings of Israel and Judah of Canaanite and Babylonian pagan cults as a corruption of monotheism. Furthermore, while foreign leaders were initially welcomed to partake in the second temple ceremonies as long as they did not impose their religious practices on Jerusalem, the introduction by the Seleucid ruler Antiochus Epiphanes of foreign deities inside the temple in the second century AD helped spark the Maccabean revolt, which also fueled by his His decision to make Sabbath observance and and circumcision punishable by death. The Maccabeans rededicated the temple, which was commemorated with the holiday of Hanukkah. They had little patience for their own co-religionists who supported the Seleucids' Hellenizing policies. So, uh, even though they allowed people to sacrifice, there are certain limitations that were denounced. Now the Maccabean Revolt and the Antiochus Epiphanes uh, was a result of what he did, and some believe Antiochus Epiphany was the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy of the abomination that causes desolation. But we know this isn't the, the case since Jesus himself spoke of it in Matthew 24:15 through 22. And he said this, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of this house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. Now, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. In those days, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. This is what Jesus said. So it can't be Antiochus Epiphanes because the Maccabeans were before Jesus ever, exi- ever came on the scene. Now, after the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel, the Assyrian Empire settled colonists from different nationalities in the Samarian hills. These groups eventually merged into the people know, uh, we know as the Samaritans, who practiced a mixed religion reflecting their, their uh, various countries of origin. When the Samaritans sought to join Jews returning from exile in Babylon in rebuilding the temple, they were rebuffed. Although Judaism may be may have demonstrated considerable openness toward other nations, its adherents showed little tolerance for their own sectarians. According to Josephus, Alexander the Great eventually allowed the Samaritans to build their own altar on Mount Gerizim near what is today, nebulous, and so that's where you get the, the Samaritans actually being in that particular place.
0: <clears throat>
1: when the Roman general Pompey entered Jerusalem in 63 BC, accelerating in 37 BC, when the Romans installed Herod as king of Judea, though he was neither a Hasmonean nor from the Davidic family... You have to hear, hear that he was not uh, Israeli at all. The Romans uh, picked King the the King uh, King Herod. By 6 A.D., Judea was formally annexed to the Roman Empire, sparking the first Jewish resistance movement. Roman oppression, oppression worsened with the acceleration in 37 A.D. of Emperor Caligula. Caligula, who viewed himself as a god and demanded that his statue be erected in the temple. He ordered an army to march on Jerusalem, kill anyone who refused his demands, and enslave the entire population of Judea if they did not submit. Caligula died before the orders could be executed, but Rome's local governors in Judea Known as procurators, became increasingly corrupt and abusive of Jewish, of the Jewish population. Beginning with Pontius Pilate, governing from 26-36 A.D., this trend climaxed with the appointment of Genesis. Uh, Guess, I don't know how to say his name. Gessius Florus, governor from 64 to 66 A.D whose oppressive policies provoked a Jewish rebellion. And so this is happening after Jesus was crucified and what kind of spurred on the destruction of the second temple. Now, furthermore, the revolt threatened the power of the Sadducees, and these, were, these mind you, were Jewish families from whom Rome chose as the temple high priests. The revolt lasted from 66 AD to 73 AD. It broke out under the rule of the Roman Emperor Nero, who dispatched to Judea his trusted general, Vestian, an experienced commander who had fought throughout the empire's western provinces. Having previously subdued a German revolt, Vespian understood how to deal with rebellions. He began his campaign, campaign with a scorched earth policy in the north. And this was Roman troops destroyed entire Jewish towns in in the Gala, in Galilee as well as the fortress of Gamal, Gamla in the Golan Heights where 5,000 Jews took their own lives rather than fall into captivity. Vestian himself became an emperor during the war and was forced to return to Rome. So his son Titus completed the campaign and led the final Roman offensive against Jerusalem. Jewish militias that uh, had fought for was had thought was forced to return to rome so his son titus completed the campaign and led the final roman offensive against jerusalem jewish militia militias that had fought vespian in the galilee area poured into the holy city prior to the final roman assault In May of 70 A.D., the Romans broke through the Jerusalem, outer Jerusalem's outer outer walls, on August 28, 70 A.D., the ninth of the Hebrew month of Av, the Romans broke through to the inner courts on the Temple Mount and crushed some 6,000 insurgents who died defending their sanctuary. Now, the Romans the roman forces uh, then set the temple on fire and destroyed it entirely they just titus had um consulted with his war counselor, council over the temple state um the roman historian to tacitus Te, Te, sorry are reports that Titus had asked if it made sense to overflow a sanctu- overthrow a sanctuary of such workmanship since it seemed to many that a sacred building, one more remarkable than any other temple, would testify to the moderation of the Romans. So they're trying to discuss whether or not they wanted to destroy the temple permanently or just, you know, Keep it for historical rec- records. and But Titus thought that sparing the temple would testify to the moderation. Uh, even though he thought it would testify to the moderation of the Romans, he later decided that the temple should be destroyed without delay in order that the religion of the Jews and the Christians should be more completely exterminated. The Romans were equally determined to el- eliminate the gene- genealog- genealogical, if I could stay that word, House of David. The Roman 10th Legion had orders to hunt down and execute any Jew claiming to be a descendant of King David. The Romans enslaved or crucified thousands of Jewish survivors around Jerusalem. The violence also threatened many of the Jerusalem's incipient Christian communities uh, many of whom had fled the Roman on, Roman onslaught in Jerusalem by moving to cities like Tala in Transjordan so it actually launched more of a uh dispersing of Christians in the nations for for um uh advancing the message of the gospel. But in the end, Titus' effort to exterminate Judaism failed. The Jews, without the temple, remained in the land for the most part. And um, it wasn't until years later that the Jews dispersed through the nations, though not everyone left. So the claims that, that the Jews did not stay in the land is not accurate. Jews have always been in the land since the time of Rome destroying
0: <clears throat>
1: Israel. Let me tell you a little bit about that. The Bar Kochba revolt in Judea in 132 to 135 AD was the final expression of national resistance to Rome. So there was another Jewish revolt In 132 to 135, so that says that they were still in the land at the time, even though the temple was destroyed at this time. Sources differ um, as to what triggered the rebellion, so we don't quite know exactly what happened. But according to the Roman historian Dio Cassius, Emperor Hadrian provoked his Jewish subjects subjects by erecting a temple to Jupiter, precisely where the temple had stood in Jerusalem, so on the Temple Mount. Other accounts claim Jews were enraged by Hadrian's decision to rename Jerusalem after himself and rebuild it as as an entirely pagan city. So either it was uh, he wanted to build a a temple to the God Jupiter on the temple site, or he wanted to rename Jerusalem and make it a pagan city. Still, others argued that Hadrian had banned circumcision. The Talmud, for its part, recounts that the Romans denied religious freedom throughout Judea. So there is even something as little as that. Early in their campaign, Bar-Kochabah's forces captured Jerusalem and completely drove the Roman military out of Judea. Bar-Kochabah's confederates minted coins to celebrate these victories that were debated. Year one of the redemption of Israel. This was a symbolic act asserting that the Jews' Jews political sovereignty was had come to an end. The guerrilla insurgency had quickly mysticized into a full-blown war of national liberation covering all of Judea and uh, making them leave Judea to the Mediterranean coast. So now you see the dispersion of Jews from the land. Now, Hadrian died three years later, but not before instituting a series of laws designed to crush any lingering national spirit among the Jews. He banned the celebration of Hanukkah, which reminded Jews of the rededication of the temple. He prohibited the eating of matzah and leavened bread on Passover, which reminded Jews of their freedom from Egyptian bondage. And he banned public study of the Torah, the Romans, moreover, tortured and killed Rabbi Akiva and many other leading religious sages. Judah, Judea was renamed Syria-Palestinia, or Palestinia for short. Hmm, Where we get our, the name Palestine. And he renamed it in order to eradicate permanently the mem- memory of Jewish independence. So if you hear the argument that Palestine had always been the name, it has not. It didn't didn't come into existence until Hadrian, after the Ro- Rome in the se- in what what around 132 to 135 A.D., changed the name from Judea um, to Palestinian. In order to eradicate permanently the mem, so in order to eradicate the the Jewish independence, the new name was taken from the Greek translation of Pleshet, the land of the Philistines. Judea Judea, Judea was depopulated of its Jewish population. Many sought refuge up north in the in the Galilee. In Galilee which became a new center of Jewish learning. Judea was renamed Syria, so, so we know that it was named Syria, Palestinia or Palestinia. so you've got to keep that in mind. In Jerusalem, the Romans sought to eliminate any sign of Jewish civilization, for the religious quest of the Jews to reestablish their spiritual capital was tied to their determination to win their political freedom, so you hear that? In Jerusalem, the Romans sought to eliminate any sign of Jewish civilization because the religious quest of the Jews to reestablish their spiritual capital was tied to their very determination to win their political freedom. And that freedom undermined Rome's imperial rule In short, the Romans too understood that Jerusalem was not only the beacon of Jewish heritage, but also the symbol of freedom and liberation that they feared could spark unrest across the empire. The Romans banned the Jews from Jerusalem and scrupulously imposed this law for centuries thereafter. They applied the injunction to Jewish Christians as well, which affected the early early development of the church. Over the years, a special exception to the ban was only permitted on the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Ab, when Jews fasted and mourned the destruction of the temple. They would approach the Western retaining wall for the Temple Mount, which was the closest they could approach to the Holy of Holies and chant the Book of Lamentations. Thus, the Western Wall became known also as the Wailing Wall. Despite the state of affairs, the Jewish people retained hope for salvation from their earlier rabbinic tradition that the divine presence, the Shekinah, would never abandon the Western Wall. Despite the of um, the <clears throat> excuse me despite the flowering of Jewish life in the, in Galilee Jews never forgot Jerusalem the same was true of Jewish communities in the diaspora although the failure of the two Jewish revolts led the rabbinic leadership to abandon its active opposition to Roman hegemony which is at its rule this did not affect Jewish views of Jerusalem. Jewish communities began re- building synagogues so that the congregations would face Jerusalem during prayer. The enlightened benedictions recited three times a day included a prayer for Jerusalem. and went like this. Oh return in mercy to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, the city... And dwell therein as thou hast spoken. O rebuild it soon in our days as an everlasting building, and speedily establish therein the throne of David. Blessed art thou, O Lord, the rebuilder of Jerusalem. These references to Jerusalem are twofold. First, to call. <clears throat> to call or to, to have a call to reestablish the city as the dwelling place of the divine, which plainly means rebuilding the temple and restoring Jewish sovereignty through the throne of David. In the grace after meals, a shorter supplication was also instituted. Rebuild Jerusalem, the holy city, soon in our days. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who in his mercy rebuilds Jerusalem these prayer prayers placed Jerusalem at the, the core of the Jewish belief in consciousness. Jews did not yearn passively. They still demonstrate their readiness to act on their aspirations. Their return to Jerusalem, however, depends largely on the willingness of foreign rulers to overturn Hadrian edicts. The promotion of Christianity by Roman Emperor Constantine in 324 AD greatly complicated these efforts, believe it or not. For early Roman Christianity attached a religious significance to the temple's destruction and the Jews' exclusion from Jerusalem. They proved, they said, sadly, that God had rejected the Jews and that Judaism was a defeated religion. Forty year late, years later, Roman Emperor Julian sought to restore paganism. Among various edicts designed to weaken Christianity's rule in the empire, he appealed Hadrian's Law and allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. Jews streamed back to resettled in, in their holy city, uh, um, <clears throat> Archaeologists excavating along the western wall in the in 1970s found a Hebrew inscription quoting from the book of Isaiah, "You shall see this, and your heart shall rejoice. Your limbs shall flourish like grass," 6614. This message, likely carved during Julian's reign, captured the enthusiasm felt among Jews among, uh, upon their return to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's Jews quickly began planning for the temple's reconstruction at that time. This seemed a real possibility for Julian, whose hostility to Christianity later earned him the moniker, Julian the Apostate, committed to help rebuild the temple and even appointed officials to oversee its construction. The plan, however, was disrupted by a major fire at the temple site that caused site caused by either arson or an earthquake. Julian was killed shortly thereafter in a battle against the Persians and the successor, Jovian, restored Christianity as the empire's official religion. Most important, Jovian re. Activated hadrian's ban on jewish settlement in jerusalem despite this setback the jews refused to reduce jerusalem to a mere ritual symbol rather they vowed to return and waited for for centuries for the opportunity to do so a substantial jewish presence survived in byzantine palestine outside of jerusalem now, following Jovians of of Hadrian's laws, Jews once again beseeching Roman rulers to overturn the ban on Jewish settlement in Jerusalem. In 425 AD, the Jews of the Galilee wrote to Byzantine empress Eudocia seeking permission to pray on the ruins of the temple. But the church establishment ultimately ended Eudostia's Vicius gestures toward the Jews who were left again to pray for their deliverance. The Jews saw another opportunity to take back Jerusalem in the early 7th century, just before the rise of Islam. The Persians conquered what had been Judea, Judea from the Byzantine Empire, capturing Jerusalem in 614 AD. The Armenian historian Sibbois describes the Jews' Jews reaction to the Persians' campaign. As the Persians approached Palestine, the remnants of the Jewish nation rose against the Christians, joined the Persians, and made common cause with them. The Persians even installed a Jew, Ben-Hashiel, Ben-Ephraim, Ben-Joseph, to rule the city. So they had great hopes at this time, and this is in 614 A.D. So we're we're only going to touch on some of this in the the beginning of his times, and I know this is a lot of information, but it's very important to understand his history and where we're going. But this was short-lived. Hoping to accommodate the Roman Christian subjects, the Persians apparently withdrew their support for any Jewish self-government. Moreover, in 629 AD, the Byzantine Emperor Heraclius conquered Jerusalem, where the former anti-Jewish edicts were again renewed. The city's new rulers banned public recital of Judaism's core prayer, the Shema, and executed many Jews or evicted them to neighboring countries. Five years later, the Byzantines required all the empire's uh, Jews to become baptized. This harsh regime did not last long, however, for in 638 AD, Muslim armies from Arabia conquered Jerusalem, thus opening a whole new chapter in the Holy City's history. 1,300 years would pass between the last Jewish self-government in Jerusalem in 614 and the establishment of a Jewish national home under the British that would la- later become the state of Israel, in forty eight. During that time, Jerusalem would remain the center of Jewish national aspirations as well as religious rituals, but the quest to return to Jerusalem was not left as an a eschatological task for the distant future, Jews returned to Jerusalem whenever the bans on Jewish settlements were lifted. Thus, many Jews came back to the holy city after the second caliph of, of Islam defeated the Byzantines, establishing a new Jewish quarter that, the populated, that po- they populated until the first crusade. Jerusalem's main Jewish synagogue in the first decades of Islamic rule, known as the cave, was located under the Temple Mount at the point along the western wall closest to the Holy of Holies. According to Muslim sources in these early years of Islamic rule, Muslim authorities put between 10 and 20 of of the new Jewish residents in charge of sanitation on the Temple Mount, until 1717, when the Umayyad caliph Umar ibn Abd Aziz replaced them with slaves. The Jewish population apparently grew in Jerusalem in these years. The Muslim historian Al-Makhdhis, writing at the end of the 10th century, complained that there were not enough. Learned Islamic religious leaders in Jerusalem in that most of the city's inhabitants were Christians and Jews. It is significant that during this period of early Islam, the presence of non Muslims on the Temple Mount was not an issue. So nobody made a huge deal of issues. Uh, So, in Coming to this point in history we're gonna, we will turn it over to Islam and we'll see how Islam has uh, interacted with the Temple Mount and in Jerusalem's, Jerusalem. Uh, the Jews always waited pensively for their return to Jerusalem because they were not supposed to proselytize or spread their faith through military campaign or by the subjugating of smaller nations. Their religion envisioned the ultimate redemption of all mankind through the observance by Jews and their commandments in a free Jerusalem that would serve both as their temple of prayer and as a welcoming site for members of other faiths, seeking to direct their own prayers to the Almighty. So their quest has always been Jerusalem. This idea was captured in Jewish eschatology by the prophet Micah 4, chapter 4, verses 1-5. He envisioned that in the days to come, Jerusalem will no longer be destroyed, but rather the mount of the Lord's house shall stand firm among the mountains. There is no foreign subjugations of Jerusalem so that Instruction, Torah shall come forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Divine peace will be extended to all the nations of the earth. Nations shall not take up sword against nations. And finally, Micah added that all the peoples walk each in the names of its gods. Regarding the Jewish people, he pro- prophesied, "We will walk in the name of the Lord our God for ever and ever." The prophecy means that all the nations will continue in their particular religious traditions while recognizing God's role in the world. Jerusalem, according to this vision, is where the particularism of the Jews supports a universal meeting point of all the world's religions. Yet, it will signify that God is above all, Jehovah God, and not the Islamic God, Allah, You will be fascinated to learn that Islam, well, if you've listened to my shows on Islam, you will see in eschatology their purpose and their aim for Jerusalem uh, in the return of the Mahdi. Now, even though it says here that uh, people will be worshiping their own gods and that the god of the scriptures will be exalted above all. It doesn't condone or say that that is a good thing, that people are worshiping other gods. God, who is God Almighty above all, the great I Am, is exalted just like he was in Egypt over all the gods of Egypt. He is the God of all. Now, Islam claims that all us is the God of all, the gods of the earth. Well, Actually, the 300 and some gods that were in the the uh, the Hajj or the 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 Kaaba. I mean, the Hajj is actually the performing of the Kaaba. Uh, the Kaaba is a building structure where where uh, Saudi Arabia housed a lot of the the idolatrous gods, and uh, Islam replaced or picked the one God which according to a lot of sources the moon God, the one that exalted above all uh, as the main God above all these other idol- idolatrous gods. Jerusalem says this in a different aspect in Jehovah. He said that there is no God but there is no God that is above all. Mm-hmm. Other than him, there is no gods, meaning there is no gods, no gods exist but him. These other gods throughout the history of Israel and christianity are are useless, worthless and and mean nothing. It's not that he is one of many gods that he is exalted above all the other gods so Jerusalem, and you know I hope you enjoyed my show today where we talked about uh, the history of, of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount according to Israel and how they viewed the Temple Mount and how historically that they have had claim. The other thing that I hope you learned today is uh, the fact that the Jews have never been completely out of the land of Israel. When the Jews, the, the the nation of Israel became a nation in 1948, it wasn't, be, you know, the influx of all the Jews wasn't that they suddenly became there, or they got there. They have always been there, but the fulfillment the prophecy of all the Jews coming from all the nations were part of, of what God said would happen when we, the, the state of Israel would be established. So the Jews are obeying their scriptures of returning to the land. They've been looking for this opportunity to come back. And now they are looking for the opportunity to rebuild the temple uh, on the Temple Mount. And it will have to be the Temple Mount. So we'll have to figure out how they're going to go about doing this when the mosque, uh, the Dome of the Rock, which is considered by some to be the third Uh, most sacred mosque of all of Islam. We'll take a look at that next week and we'll see if that is actually the truth. We'll see the historical claim on the the Temple Mount in regards to Islam on my next show. and uh, So it will be focused in that direction for that time. Again, My name is Brenda Johnson. I am the host of As the Day Approaches. I thank you for joining me. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this series on on Israel. And I hope that in these shows, you can get a lot out of them. If you'd like to contact me, you can contact me at As the Day Approaches at mediacombb.net. I also have a website. Uh, It's still under construction. There are some of my shows that haven't quite got on there yet. I do plan on uh, focusing and getting these shows put on there. Eventually I will put news and highlights and things like that, but it is still under construction. You can also contact me on Facebook. You can befriend me under Brenda Johnson. It might be a little bit hard to find me. I'm not because my name is very common. So if you would rather try to find me on Facebook through Phil Armstrong or Christine Weick or uh, Susan Puzio, uh, you can go to their Facebook because I'm friends with them and and then you can find me that way. Also, I have a False Teachings Identifying Them group site on Facebook where we discuss uh, issues Uh, pertaining to Christianity. Uh, There's a lot of false teachings today in the church. And uh, this site is a discussion site. Uh, One thing about an an evangelistic site. One of the things that people are confused by a lot of times is that uh, people will post false teachings. I'll identify them as false teachings. And I will leave them on for discussion so that those who have fallen into these teachings can see that their teaching is not quite uh, what they thought it was. So join me on those two places, and I will see you next time on As the Day Approaches. God bless, and have a wonderful day and week. Good day.